I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, so grateful for you as a church, how God used you last Sunday. I want to thank you for volunteering, for serving, for inviting, for praying, for sticking a bumper sticker on your car, a lawn sign in your lawn, um, for giving. Thank you for all that you did uh, to be used by God to change our community for Christ. It was just a remarkable thing. Thank you for attending. Thank you for being there and being friendly to the visitors that were around you. I'm just so grateful. And thank you for your giving as you just received the offering. Thank you for your faithful giving that makes all the outreaches of our church uh, possible. You know, yesterday, my father-in-law uh, went home to be with the Lord, Kimberly's dad. And uh, she had the privilege of uh, being reading. I had actually stepped out of the room uh, for a few minutes. And while I was gone, uh, that's when he went home to be with the Lord. And she was able to read the 23rd Psalm to him as he slipped from this life uh, into heaven. And I know this will embarrass my mother-in-law to say this, but you know, it was my father-in-law 18 years ago that gave the financial gift that started Easter at Fairplex. Went to him, shared the vision, and he's the one that invested the amount that we needed to do in order to have that at, at Fairplex. And uh, I'm just so grateful for him. He was really like my, the second half of my life dad, because my dad had a wonderful relationship with my dad, but he was in Virginia. And then when I pastored New York and here, they were nearby, and so was able to spend more time with him. And uh, just so grateful that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is Jesus that is uh, for such a time as this. And you know, just so grateful for his financial investment in that. And just to see what Easter at Fairplex has become, it is just a remarkable thing. Uh, maybe you saw the newspaper article. There are some of those out there in the lobby that you can get a hold of. And if you look up there, you'll see the article said, Easter services at Fairplex in Pomona uh, draw thousands. Uh, the newspaper had us at like eleven or 12,000, but we think it was at least uh, 10,000. That might be a more conservative number. There were over 200 Decisions for Christ uh, last Sunday. That's the number that is uh, truly important. And, and then 87 baptized. Uh, 87 people got baptized last Sunday. What an absolute thrill that was. Um, I loved, in case you didn't hear it, let me read you what the mayor said. Our mayor, Elliot Rothman, gave the greeting at the nine o'clock service at Fairplex. And here's what the mayor said. People talk about the heart and soul of Pomona. He said how appropriate it is to have this Easter service here in this location today. Because here's what he said. The Fairplex is the heart of Pomona, and Pomona First Baptist Church is the soul of Pomona. Isn't that a wonderful thing for our mayor uh, to have said about us? Now, uh, the, the best part is not the statistics, but the stories behind the statistics. And we heard so many stories. Let me just pick one to share with you here. The, this is our head usher wrote this. The most touching story was when the baptism started. I had tears in my eyes, approached the top of the escalator where the security guards were positioned. The main guard wearing sunglasses saw the tears in my eyes and told me that all three of the security guards were just watching the baptisms and that all three of them were crying at this amazing sight and this amazing crowd of loving people. He went on to tell me that he recognized one of the young men being baptized. This young man had grown up in his neighborhood and he was always in trouble. He personally had arrested him at least eight times at the Fairplex over the years. And here he was giving his life to Christ and being baptized. 
the guard was overwhelmed at the miracle he was witnessing. So that's the resurrected Jesus still at work. I just tell you a story that was personally touching to me. Um, you can even tell today, I've had trouble for a couple of weeks with this cold that I've been fighting. And last Saturday night, I was really discouraged. And I appreciate your prayers for those of you that were praying for me. Because uh, it was midnight, I'd been coughing all night. I could feel myself. It was the kind of cough where I felt lo- losing my voice. And I was so discouraged uh, by it all. And, and just laying there awake at midnight, all of a sudden, ding, my phone goes off and I've got a text. And it's from Ray Johnston. And, and I was just, uh, he's pastor of a humongous church up in uh, Bayside, up in Sacramento. One of the biggest churches in the country. And we had only texted each other once in, in, our, in our lives had we texted each other. And I'm like, what is Ray Johnston texting me at midnight for? He's got his hands full on Easter weekend. And he just said, the text went on to say, he says, you know, Glenn, for some reason, God just put you on my heart. And I'm praying for you tonight that you'll be able to share tomorrow on, on Easter Sunday. And, and that was just such an encouragement from the Lord. Woke up that next morning, felt like a million dollars. And I'm just so grateful for your prayers and all you did uh, as a church. Uh, praise God for you guys. I'm so privileged to be your pastor and, and to lead you into spiritual battle. And what an absolute thrill it was. So let's praise God uh, together as we watch this uh, right now. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. Doesn't, uh, doesn't get much more fun than that, does it? And just praise God, and I want to thank you. Would you please turn with me to your study outlines, and we're going to 
jump back into the story right now. If you're just coming in and visiting today, this is a perfect time to join in. I really encourage you, get a copy of this uh, called The Story. It's available. It costs us $6, but you know what? Don't worry about the money part of it. Just $6 or whatever you can afford. If you can't afford anything, just grab one of these. We don't want anybody not to have this because of finances. They're available at the Resource Center encourage you to get a hold of this, as this has helped so many people to understand the Bible, as it takes the Bible, makes it read like a novel, uh, kind of chronologically in a more abbreviated form uh, through the scriptures, and really encourage you to get a hold of one of these. And like I said, it's perfect timing, because now what we do is we begin to look at what the world was like uh, before Jesus came. We begin to prepare ourselves for what it looked like, then the life of Jesus, then the early church, and on into the future. And so this is a perfect time for you to jump in with us. If you want to catch up, you know, for two or three hours, you could probably catch up. Just like reading any other book, you could catch up for two or three hours. But it's really not necessary. This is a great time to kick in. The title of today's study is, No King But King God. Um, Randy Frazee writes, What if the United States had kings instead of presidents. Did you know that George Washington was asked to be king of America during the Revolutionary War? George Washington, both as a Christian and as a praying man, rejected the offer. He believed that there was only one king. A motto that was shouted often during the war was, no king but King Jesus. This was a motto during the Revolutionary War. Here's an actual quote from the Revolutionary War found in the Catholic Education website. In 1774, a report to King George of England, the governor of Boston noted, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none nor any governor but Jesus Christ. The pre-war colonial committees of correspondence soon made this American motto, no king but King Jesus. And this sentiment was carried over End of the 1783 peace treaty with Great Britain, ending that war, which begins in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Now, we have no king but King Jesus, and then we serve where he tells us to serve. King Henry III of Bavaria in the 11th century got tired of being king. He got tired of court life. He got tired of the pressures associated with it. So he said, I'm going to leave the throne. I'm going to enter a monastery and devote the rest of my life to the contemplation of Jesus. How many of you have ever had a day of work like that? You know, a day at work, you just say, you know what? I'm leaving it all. I'm going to go join a monastery. Now, Prior Richard, who was the head of the monastery, Prior Richard, not to be mistaken for Richard Pryor, uh, <laughs> talk about the 70s now, okay. Um, he said to the king, now this is going to be hard for you, he said to the king, because that means for the rest of your life, you've got to be obedient to me. As Christ leads me, I will lead you. Are you prepared to do that? The king said, yes, I am. He says, well, here's my first command to you. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. And so the king did that. And for many years, and many years later, he died, and it was written about him upon his death. He was the king who learned to rule by being obedient. And so you make Jesus your king. You say, Jesus, where do you want me to serve? I will serve where you plant me, wherever that might be, and then I'll do it in the way you tell me to do it. It's a story from the news this past week that just really touched me. I think it hit a personal note because our church 
has uh, some people in the Middle East in, in, in Christian uh, medical uh, work there uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we're not allowed to say where they are because uh, it's a more secretive kind of thing, but they're there. I have personal friends, uh, friends of mine from college that serve in that part of the world. And so when the news came across about a gunman who killed three Americans at a Kabul a hospital in Afghanistan, it really hit close to home, and, and we need to be, it's the kind of thing we can't talk about it a lot, but we need to be in prayer for those that are serving God in this way. And the gunman came into this uh, Christian hospital and killed a pediatrician and a father and a son, and it says this hospital was run by a U.S.-based Christian charity, and the gunman was also wounded, official said. Now, here's something that just jumped off the page at me. The hospital staff perform surgery on the attacker who had shot himself before he was handed over to the Afghan authorities. Who does that unless they're commanded by King Jesus? That's the Jesus style. Attacker comes into the hospital, kills three of their colleagues. They do surgery on him to save his life before he's turned over to the authorities. Who does that? Followers of Jesus is who does that. We have no king but Jesus. We serve where he tells us to serve, and then we serve in the way that he tells us uh, to, to serve. Uh, let's catch up with where we are in the story. Put our map up there. This is from 900 B.C. In 1000 B.C., Israel was at its peak of power under King David and his son, King Solomon. But then Solomon's son, David's grandson, Rehoboam, there's a civil war around 900 B.C., Their kingdom splits into two parts. Israel is the northern part, and Judah is the southern part. So now it splits between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Back to your study outline. The northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes, and it was called Israel. It lasts for 208 years. It has 19 kings, and they're all bad. God sends nine prophets, but only one, Jonah, is listened to, But he's not listened to by the nation of Israel. He's listened to by the Ninevites, what is today the nation of Iraq. So his hometown doesn't listen to him. His home country, only the foreigners, the people in another country, listen to him. Israel eventually, because of their disobedience to God, falls to the Assyrians, what is today the nation of northern part of Iraq, in 722 B.C. Now God had warned his people of calamity. He warned them again and again. If you don't turn around and start obeying me and you start worshiping all these false gods, eventually it's going to bring bad things into your life. And he warns his people through his prophets time and time again of coming calamity if they don't change their ways. Uh, ABC News a few years ago had an interesting uh, piece of modern art that they were reporting on. This, This is a true story. Unusual piece of modern art, which was a chair attached to a shotgun. And the way you experience this piece of modern art is you would sit in the chair staring into the barrel of the shotgun. Now it gets even worse. The shotgun was on a timer set to go off sometime in the next 100 years. And lines of people lined up to sit in this for a minute just trusting, gambling that their minute in the chair was not the minute that the shotgun was going to go off. You say, who does something crazy like that? People do it all the time. They do it all the time. Uh, God says, look, if you don't change this thing, it's going to get you in trouble. You say, well, maybe it won't happen during my one minute in the chair. And the nation of Israel did this. The prophet said, look, 
uh, nation's going to come in and take you into exile if you don't change your ways. Well, maybe it won't happen during my lifetime. Well, finally, the gun goes off, and they're sitting in the chair. 2 Kings 17, verse 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked, that just simply means stubborn, as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. We become what we worship. That's why as followers of Jesus, we're commanded to worship Jesus. Why? So that we become like Jesus as we worship him. We become what we worship. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. We think it's only teenagers that suffer from peer pressure. Adults suffer from peer pressure. We want to fit into the culture in which we find ourselves. We want to be like the society that surrounds us. We give in to peer pressure as well. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God had made for themselves and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole, which was a form of another idol. You know, I say, why is God so uptight? Why is God so jealous? Why can't you worship God and a number of other idols as well? What's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem. Put it this way, uh, God compares himself to the groom and followers of God are called the bride of God or the bride of Christ. That's the way we're referred to. We're his bride, he's the groom. Now how many grooms like it when the doors swing open in the worship center, they swing open, the organ hits it, and down comes the bride accompanied by four or five other groomsmen, okay? Uh, four or five former boyfriends, how do you like that? She walks down the aisle with four or five, accompanied by four or five of her old boyfriends. That groom is not going to have the happy look on his face that you normally see on the the face of a groom. And God's the same way. He says, I want to be the groom to my bride. Uh, They bow down to all the starry hosts. They were involved in astrology. You say, well, Glenn, what's the big deal with just reading your horoscope? Well, it's messing with this uh, worship of the stars. They worship the stars rather than the one that created the stars. They worship Baal. That's another false god. They sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. Sometimes you say, why did God deal so harshly with the Canaanites? I mean, what's up with that? Well, they were involved in the, the, the sacrifice of their children, child sacrifice was the way they worshiped their gods. That's why they were removed and replaced by the nation of Israel. But now Israel begins to do the same thing as the nation that they replaced, as the Canaanites. They practiced divination, sought omens. They went to fortune tellers. They played with a Ouija board. They got involved in the worship of Satan and involved in the occult. Uh, They practiced divination. They sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And so the, the, the God's plan to bring the Messiah is going to carry on, but in the remnant found in just one tribe, the tribe of Judah, from which we get Judea, which means Jewish. Uh, the Jewish people, through the tribe of Judah, God continues his plan. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They follow the practices that Israel had introduced. 
Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of the northern kingdom, Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunders until he thrust them from his presence. And he did it through the Assyrians, what is today the nation of Iraq. Uh, here's a picture from the gate of Shalmaneser III. This is a picture from uh, the gate of his palace. And the Assyrians were the original psychological terrorists. They knew how to terrorize the people they were attacking. And this uh, shows this, where they're cutting off limbs. They're impaling people on poles. And they use psychological warfare against their enemies. Here's Sargon II, another of their leaders, meeting with a dignitary. And they're eventually dragged into exile. You'll see the map here. And they're taken from Israel as you follow the yellow line and dragged into exile, scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, never to be heard from again. The ten tribes of the north are conquered and sent into exile by the Assyrians. They become known as the lost tribes of Israel. They are disseminated into the other cultures around them and they basically disappear as a unique people. Then there's the southern kingdom. It's made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but Judah was the major one, so it's simply called Judah. It lasts for 344 years. It has 20 kings, six are good, and 14 are bad. It eventually, however, falls to the Babylonians, which is in southern Iraq today, in 586 BC. They last an additional 136 years beyond what the northern kingdom lasted. Now, why is that? Well, because of the occasional good king like Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king who trusted in God. Hezekiah, by putting his trust in God, defied the Assyrian king who conquered the northern kingdom. Here, uh, the Assyrians come down, they conquer the north, and now they turn to the south. And here's little Judah in the face of this humongous uh, superpower. Back then, the way small nations survived is by making alliances with superpowers. And they used to be able to stand on their own during Solomon and David when they were unified, but now they're split into two smaller countries, and now they become smaller countries at the whim of the superpowers of that time, and the only way you survived is by making alliances with the superpowers. Now, the three superpowers at that time were Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. But Hezekiah had this crazy idea. The contemporary wisdom was, you got to make an alliance either with Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon. And he has this crazy idea, I'm not going to do A, B, or C. I'm going to do D, none of the above. I'm going to trust in God and God alone. People said, you're crazy. No, I'm just, I'm just going to trust in God. And he discovered that principle, which we find throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, you're practicing that principle right now. How many of you have a lot to do this week? Let, let me see your hands. What are you doing sitting here then for, okay? Well, you know why you're here? Because you've discovered that devoting the first hour, the first day of the week, you've discovered that six days with God's blessing on it goes farther than seven days without God's blessing on it. Anybody want to say amen to that? that that's why you're here, worshiping God and, and studying his word. Um, you've discovered in your finances that 90% with God's blessing on it goes farther than 100% without God's blessing. You found, if you, maybe you're reading through the story, and every day, you know, some people are morning people, they do it in the morning. Some are bedtime people, they do it before they go to bed. Some are lunch break people. And you take the story, and you read it for 10, 15 minutes, and they spend 10 or 15 minutes in prayer, and you have found that 23 and a half hour day with God's blessing on it goes farther than 24 hours without God's blessing on it. Okay? Boy, I had a great modern day example of this. 
Um, how many of you love chicken? How many of you love chicken? I love chicken. My daughter was just in the green room just before I came in saying, Dad, can we go to Donahue's afterwards? Can we, can we pick it up as we go home? So she's working me for chicken after the service is over. And that's all I can think about as I'm preaching here right now is that, is that chicken with the extremely healthy exterior to it. It's just a very, you know, just each bite takes six months off your life. I'm telling you. So at any rate, here, fascinating factoid. You're going to be so glad you came to church today. Do you know that just recently, um, uh, Chick-fil-A passed Kentucky Fried Chicken as the number one provider of chicken in America? Chick-fil-A just passed Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, what makes that crazy is is two things. Okay, Chick-fil-A has fewer stores than Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's open fewer days because their owners are followers of Christ. They don't open on Sunday. So they're open six days rather than seven. They have fewer stores And yet they have discovered that six days with God's blessing on it goes farther in business than seven days without his his blessings. Every time you bite into one of those chickens, just think, biblical principle. You know, trust God. Trust God as he is. Now, you can read these passages on your own. Uh, Turn to the next page of your study outline. There's that beautiful passage. I encourage you to read it where um, he just goes before God, Hezekiah does, and just says, God... I, people say I'm crazy because the Assyrians have wiped out everybody. But you know, I'm just going to trust in you. And God himself destroyed the Assyrian army. Interesting thing for those that are interested in archaeology and how it, how it validates scripture time and time again and extra biblical, other biblical, non-biblical sources. We we'll put Sennacherib's picture up there. This is the guy that was threatening Sennacherib. Or Sennacherib was threatening Hezekiah. And it's very interesting because when you go through the annals um, and, and the ancient documents from the Assyrian Empire this time. You've got to know, and I've said this before, that in the ancient world, it was all a brag fest. Nobody ever ac- accurately portrayed history. It was all Pharaoh so-and-so did awesome things, and he was awesome all the time in his awesomeness. And the king of Babylon, same way. King of Assyria, the same way. They never put bad, bad news in there. And that's what makes the Bible just stand out so incredibly from other works of antiquity. I mean, here's the Bible with its group of knuckleheads, you know, where they're just a group of mess-ups, and occasionally they do the right thing, you know. And, and it just is, to me, it's one of those things that's the fingerprints of God on it because it tells it like it is, the good, bad, and the ugly, unlike any other. It stands out in stark contrast to any other work of antiquity, how the Bible tells reality. It tells about the lying of Abraham and the drunkenness of Noah and the, um, you know, you just go down the list and Samson with his vices and David's adultery. I mean, it tells it all. But other works of antiquity did not do that. And so it's interesting when you come to Sennacherib, he says, I went to this nation, I wiped them out, threw them into exile. I went to this nation and conquered them. I went to this nation and conquered them. Then he comes to Judah and Hezekiah. And he says this, I have shut Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage. Put him under siege, couldn't defeat him, okay? Just, that's what you call political spin. I have shut Hezekiah up like a bird in the cage, okay? Now, what I wanna do with the remainder of our time um, is go down to where it says God will keep his promise to bring the Messiah through Judah. I, I wanna just go down there and spend the remainder of our time because there are three main points to this message. First of all, um, beware uh, ignoring the judgment of God. And we see that in the northern kingdom, Israel. But trust in God 
um, rather than just the ways of the culture and the society around you. Trust, trust in God, not contemporary wisdom. That's the example of Hezekiah and Judah. But now remember how we always say that there are clues in the first part of the story that tell us how the story is going to end. And there's a prophet during the time of Hezekiah named Isaiah. He's the major prophet of the Old Testament. He's quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament. And Isaiah is going to give us a humongous clue as to how the story is going to end. God will keep his promise to bring the Messiah through Judah. Isaiah writes in chapter 49, verse 23, Judah will not be disappointed. I love this verse. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Isn't that a great verse? Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Anybody want to say amen to that? What a wonderful verse. Judah will be a blessing to the whole world. He says in verse 26, then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your, you tell me, what's the word there? Your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now this is fulfilled 700 years later. This is given 700 BC. This is fulfilled in Jesus. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah is gonna provide a character sketch of the Messiah. Now, the kind of Messiah that the Jews were looking for on that first Palm Sunday as Jesus marched in, came into Jerusalem, didn't march in, that's the whole point, came in riding a donkey, came in humbly uh, riding into Jerusalem. The kind they were looking for, I was thinking about this thing, what they were looking for is kind of a Muhammad is what they were looking for. You know what Muhammad did? He was a great military leader. He mobilized all the Arabian tribes on the Arabian Peninsula and mobilized them into a force to deal with their enemies. And so he was a, Muhammad was a great military leader, and he was a general, and that's what he did. He mobilized people for warfare. And so what they were looking for on that first Palm Sunday when Jesus came in Jerusalem was a Muhammad. But instead, they get the one that Isaiah talks about 700 years before Jesus. And I've saved time at the end of the message here simply to read this without commentary, without interruption, these 15 powerful verses from 700 PC. And just as I read them, think to yourself, who does this remind me of? Isaiah 52, we'll do the last three verses and then pick it up with chapter 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and which the rich, with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And all God's family said, amen. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah said, this is the kind of Messiah you should be looking for. No king but King Jesus And Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things will be given to you, will fall into place as as well. He said, no king but King Jesus. Now follow me in the place where I've planted you and do it in the way, the style that I've called on you to do. Ministering to your enemies, doing surgery on your enemies, on the one that has just taken the life of your colleagues. Do it according to the ways of King Jesus in the place where he puts you and as you make him your, your king. And do it with his righteousness, not earning God's good favor by doing a bunch of good deeds, but instead trusting in the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. He is our redeemer. We are redeemed by his death on the cross and purchased by God with, the, with his death and, and rise again with him from the dead to live a new life. The power of changed lives because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We are redeemed through him to a new way of life.